We talked last week about the testimony of John the Baptist, and we're still uh, in that section a little bit, but the scene is beginning to shift here. We're going to start looking at uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry now. And as we pick up the narrative here in the Gospel of John, John is shifting from the testimony, John the Apostle is shifting from the testimony of John and going into the narrative of Jesus' life. And with that in mind, we see that he now begins to introduce Jesus in this gospel. And to, there are some amazing, some fabulous things that are, that are brought out as we get into this. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to the gospel according to John, chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 29 through 31. I don't normally teach a, such a short passage of scripture but as I got into this, it was interesting. Earlier in the week, I began to study, and I had a whole big chunk. And it's just as the Lord moved, and as I prayed, and as I studied, and all of that, I kept shortening up the bottom of it. And pretty soon, I was down to one verse, and I thought, well, I've got to at least get more than that in, so I expanded it to three. So <laughs> uh, we're going to look at verses 29 through 31 this morning. And uh, let's go through it together. It says that the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, or in the home, and he says, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that, should he, should, that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. We talked about John's baptism last week, if you remember, those of you that were here, and how it's not the same baptism that we as Christians have. It, is a, it was a baptism that was for Israel. Everything had been quiet in Israel for 400 years since Malachi stopped prophesying, and they had gone through a lot of different things. I mean, there's some great history in there. I mean, there's some, a lot of writings, too, um, that talk about that 400 years and, and horrible things that went on. I mean, we had somebody that was uh, sort of the equivalent to Hitler, a guy by the name Antiochus Epiphanes, that uh, just slaughtered the Jews. I mean, there's a, a, it's a very interesting history in that. But God had not spoken through a prophet from the time of Malachi until the time of John. And so John came baptizing a baptism of, remember, repentance for the remission of sins. That's not the baptism that we have. We have a baptism that is a response that's an outward sign of an inward act that we say when we're baptized that we're baptized into his death resurrected to the newness of life that he offers that's the symbol the symbol is, is that I am as an act of obedience responding to the work that he's done in my life responding to the, the, the gospel and therefore getting baptized and making a public proclamation that my life, my heart belongs now to Jesus that wasn't what John was doing. What he was doing was preparing a way for Messiah. He was preparing a way for Jesus because God was doing this whole new thing. Remember, we looked uh, where uh, in Matthew where he talked about the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they came to him, him and he said, You brood of vipers, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because they could no longer stand on their heritage as Jews and figure that got them into good shape with God. Now it was going from a group to a group of individuals. Remember, we covered that. So just by way of review, so that we can kind of catch the context of what's going on now, uh, by this time, as we're going along here, the baptism uh, of uh, Jesus' baptism and his temptations in the wilderness and all that, that was past. Uh, if we blend the Gospels, you can blend the Gospels and see that there's a gap in here, and in that gap, the Gospel accounts of Jesus... Uh, being baptized and going, being driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days and all of that. That's not in the Gospel of John. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means that John just was not anointed by the Spirit to sort of camp on that in his Gospel. So, that's past. When we look at this, we see the next day that, that John saw Jesus coming toward him in verse 29, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interesting. This is the first time that Jesus shows up here. And... John uses the word behold, or look is how it's rendered, <laughs> or look in the, uh, the, the Holman. Uh, and it's basically, he's make, it's sort of an exclamation point. He's saying, check it out. In, in our vernacular, we might say, whoa, you know, here he is, type of a thing. Um, so 
interesting, this is the first time we see Jesus in this gospel. And if we were to go out to the end of this gospel, in John chapter 19, we could see that there's another time where this word behold, whether you say behold or look, it's the same Greek word. And it's, like I said, it's an emphatic statement. Uh, is when Jesus is behold before Pilate. At the, at the very end of his earthly ministry. He's just beginning it here in the Gospel of John chapter 1. But in chapter 19, he's being tried before Pilate. And, and Pilate says, Behold, your king. And the, the Jews all started to boo and to jeer and all of that. And he said, Do you want me to crucify your king? And they said, We have no king but Caesar. And then he sent him off. That was the last thing that was done before Jesus was sent off to be, to, to be crucified. So interesting that we sort of have this segue between the two. Uh, here John is introducing Jesus, and there Pilate is introducing him as truly as king of the Jews. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But um, that same emphatic statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when we look at the Lamb of God, there's a couple of observations that we could make. You turn that. Uh... <laughs> oh, there we are. All right, a couple of observations that we could make. The first is, well, what, is, what does John mean when he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God"? And, you know, sometimes when I'm when I'm going to teach something, especially if it's a passage I've taught before, and I've taught the Gospel of John a few times and, over the years, and, and I, I get comfortable with it, and I start, I see that as I'm comfortable with things, it, things kind of tend to drop out. And, and so what I'll do is I'll imagine if this was the very first time I was reading this passage, what would I think? And so as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what on earth would that mean? And yeah, I know a lot of you are, are well-taught Bible students, and that's good. And some of you maybe not, and that's okay too, that's great. This is how we learn of the one whom we worship. And so I would think, behold, the Lamb of God. What is this Lamb of God thing that takes away the sins of the world? Well, I learned that in Sunday school, but what's the connection here? And I want to go back into the Old Testament. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in the Old Testament this morning looking at the foundation that God laid for this principle or this view of Jesus as the Lamb. And the first is that he's the answer to Isaac's question. In Genesis chapter 22. So if you turn there with me, or if you just look at the board that, or the screen, that's fine. And in Genesis 22, verses 6 through 8, a little bit of background here. God has come to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm gonna, I want you to go and sacrifice your son, your, your only son, he says, whom you love, in the beginning of chapter 22. I want you to go into the land of um, Moriah, and... I'll show you a mountain there, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham sets off. In verse 6, it says, So he took the wood, the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac his son, and took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and the two of them went together. So they went off to the land of Moriah. And it says, but as they're going along now, God had shown Abraham the mountain uh, here in Moriah that he would go to, and so they're going off to, they've left the servants behind, and they're heading up onto this mountain. It's going to go up on top of the mountain and be obedient to what God had told them to do, which I find very remarkable. I mean, yeah, don't try this at home kind of a thing. This is, this is a test for Abraham. And it says in Genesis 22 at the beginning, it says God tested Abraham there. God never had the intention of having Abraham take his son's life, but he was testing his obedience. He was testing his willingness to follow the Lord's lead. And so, so in verse 7, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the sacrificial lamb? And Abraham said in verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, 
God will provide for himself. I would think that it would be worded, God will provide for us a lamb for the burnt offering. But that wasn't the point. The offering, a sacrifice, was always for sin. And a sacrifice for sin was God in his mercy saying, that should be you, but I'm going to provide a substitute. We see a perfect illustration and a beautiful picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus when he goes to the cross in this, of Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is thousands of years before Jesus came along. And yet here he is being illustrated beautifully back in the book of Genesis. And when Jesus told the people in the volume of the book or the scroll of the book, it's written of me, this is the kind of thing that he was talking about. This looks prophetically right at the cross. Because God knew, and he could look down through the ages and know that his son would be the Lamb of God. And the, the parallels here are striking. We're going to get into a number of parallels as we go along this morning. But one of the things that's interesting is Moriah is mentioned twice in the Old Testament, in the Bible. But the first is here in Genesis 22. Uh, where, where he talks about this mountain in the land of Moriah. The second is in Second Chronicles chapter 3, where, remember, King David had said, Lord, I want to build a house for you. I want to build the temple, was what he was saying, because they'd gotten the ark back from the Philistines, and it had stayed in um, kiriath Jerem for 25 years, and then David brought it into the city of David, and housed it there, and he wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build a dwelling place for the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And God said, no, David, you can't. I love you, but you have too much blood on your hands. And so on time goes onward, and, and David's son Solomon has now ascended to the throne, and he has decided that he's going to build a house. He's going to build the temple for God. The first temple in Israel was Solomon's temple. And so when he does that, it says that he selected the place to build the temple, and where would it be? Mount Moriah. And the Temple Mount today, go ahead, um, Nicholas. I, I showed you this picture a couple weeks ago, but I show you this and in modern-day Israel. The Temple Mount is literally built over the top of an excavated Mount Moriah. And in Jerusalem today, Mount Moriah, there's Mount Zion, there's Mount Moriah, and then there's the Mount of Olives. The lowest of the mountains is Mount Moriah because it wasn't God's design to put his temple up on top of a hill where nobody could see in or nobody, no one could see it. He wanted it within view of all of his people. You can come over the Mount of Olives and look right down on the Temple Mount. That's where this illustration is taken from. Go to the next one, please. This is modern-day uh, Jerusalem, and it shows the Temple Mount. Again, it's Mount Moriah where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, his son. Now, Interesting, if you look at the Dome of the Rock here, that is the, it's the second most holy site in Islam. And uh, I was reading this week about uh, the Six-Day War when Israel just tromped on everybody that ganged up on her and miraculously took that, took the Arab nations that had uh, attacked her, took them down. I mean, it was, a, it was an absolutely miraculous war. I went to Israel, my guide, a couple times when I went, was a guy that was a commander in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and he shared some mind-blowing stories of miraculous things that God was doing during that war. And so, um, at that point, when, when we look at this, we look at, remember I shared with you guys, it might have been when I was guest speaking before I came, but one of the things that the enemy always does is he likes to take there's the original. There's the thing that God is doing or God has done, and he puts down the counterfeit. The Dome of the Rock, I will submit to you, is the counterfeit. Obviously, I I would love to see more people convert from Islam to Christianity. I mean, that's God's heart. That's our heart. And it is anything but a religion of peace, as we could probably tell by a lot of the headlines and all of that. I'm not going to go down that road. But... The reason why it's called the Dome of the Rock is because that is where they say in Islam, Abraham went to sacrifice not Isaac, but Ishmael. And Ishmael, if you look back at Abraham's life, he was a son that was born outside of the promise. God told Abraham when he was an old guy and his wife, uh, Sarah, she was, they were both advanced in years and, 
And he said, you're going to have a child. And they both took turns laughing at him over that, which is remarkable. Uh, and it, it, as a matter of fact, when Sarah did it, he said, I, did you laugh? Oh, no, I didn't laugh. <laughs> because to them it seemed ludicrous. But God is the, he, he, anything is possible with him. Well, Abraham got impatient. It would be 25 years after the promise came that he would have the son of promise, Isaac. But in the meantime, he took Hagar, his wife's handmaiden, and the relations with her, and she bore a son named Ishmael. They were banished after Isaac was, was born. They were banished to a place that's called the Wilderness of Paran. And it's, we looked last week at where John the Baptist was baptizing. It was on the east side of the Jordan River. That's the Wilderness of Paran. And it's modern-day Arabia. So he's the father of the Arab, Arab nations. There's no question about that. He plays a central role in Islam. Ishmael does. But truly, when we look at this, this shrine, because it's it's not a mosque, it's a shrine. There's The Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the Temple Mount as well. It's a huge mosque that the Arabs have been excavating under the ground of the Temple Mount for years around the, the remnants of Mount Moriah underneath. And they've got a 10,000-seat mosque under the Temple Mount today. But this rock is supposed to be the same rock that Abraham went to on Mount Moriah. We know it as a place where he went to sacrifice Isaac, and he drew back the knife, and if you know the story, God said, Abraham, Abraham, wait. The angel of the Lord did. And Abraham said, yes, and, and the Lord said, no, no. And, and it, paraphrasing, I was looking for the obedience and not the sacrifice. And we see in that the principle that obedience is always better than sacrifice. And I remember the Lord released me from, I had a horrible job back, way back, and, and I, I prayed, Lord, I just, you know, I, I, I want to go into business for myself, and I have to support my family. And the Lord wouldn't release me. And then one day I was reading there in Genesis 22, and I read this story. And I prayed after I read it, and I sensed the Lord saying, I'm releasing you from that. And I spent the next 25 years plus uh, with just a, a blessed business life and, and all of that. But, but God used that to show me I wanted your obedience. I was miserable. I was getting ulcers. I mean, it, was a, it was really a tough deal. And, and I'd like to say I was trusting God more at that time. I was a pretty young Christian and all that. But my point is, is that he looks for obedience. It's better than sacrifice. To simply, if he's moving in your life, he's moving in your heart in a particular way, in humility, come to him and say, Lord, I accept that. I accept that. If you're in pain, this is free. <laughs> if you're in pain, if, if we go through painful times. Very often, what I've discovered in my own life is that when I'm in pain, it's because I have refused or have had trouble or I am not able, for whatever reason, to accept the circumstances with which I'm dealing. Acceptance is the opposite of pain. Because when I come to accept, Lord, you're in this. I may not understand it. I may not see it. I may not get what you're doing because you don't show us the end from the beginning. You call us to walk by faith, to walk in obedience. And when I when I finally come to that point where he's had his hand on me and I know that I've been going through some painful stuff and I simply say, Lord, take it. A lot of times what happens is that weight is lifted because now my will is lining up with his and I'm not striving against what he's doing in my life. So here we see that this is the answer. When, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's talking about the Lamb of God, not the Lamb of man. Abraham, you know, if you, if you know the story here, he turned after he relented from have, going to sacrifice his son, and there was a ram stuck by his horns in the thicket next to where they were. And they sacrificed that lamb in place of his son. Very, again, a very good, clear picture of what Jesus does for us in his substitutionary, his vicarious atonement. Is the, that's the fancy words. But vicarious means one to stand in place of the other. Atonement means to bring two estranged parties together. 
And that's what Jesus did at the cross. And so John is prophetically speaking here about Jesus' mission. And the very first words out of his mouth is he sees Jesus here in this scene. So, moving on here to the second thing that we see is to the Jewish mind, the lamb would immediately connect the hearer to the Passover. In Luke 22, we see a picture of the upper room. And Jesus in the upper room, having the Passover with his men the night before he would be crucified. And in the Passover, they're taking, he says, that's when he does, we just took communion. And again, part of why I wanted to do communion on the front end of the message this morning was we see a picture here of what Jesus intends the fulfillment of the Passover to be. And it's the body and the blood, not of a lamb, but of the lamb. Um, in Exodus chapter 12, I want to look at the Passover, and I, again, I want to draw some parallels, and I want to find some unmistakable pointers that point to the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of, of Christ in this. So in Exodus chapter 12, this is Moses here, uh, getting instructions from God on implementing the Passover. The background here is Israel has been in bondage in Egypt uh, for 400 years. They, they started out well, and the Bible tells us the Pharaoh was raised up that knew not Joseph, uh, who was the original guy down there, and we go into all that, but um, that the Pharaoh, the Israelites, continued to multiply and to be fruitful and to do all that God had told them to do, to where they got to be a very sizable force, somewhere between one and two million people. And Pharaoh was threatened by that, so he put them into slavery. And he had them making bricks for his construction projects. And then he had them making bricks without straw, so there was nothing to hold the bricks together, which would be very, very difficult. And so these people were being heavily oppressed in Egypt, and God raised Moses up. Those of you that know the Bible, that know... Uh, the story there, God raised Moses up to deliver the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Well, what he does, he commissions Moses there at the burning bush, and Moses says, well, you know, or essentially, I don't speak well. And God says, that's fine, we'll use your brother's voice, but I'm still going to use you. <laughs> Illustrating uh, some great things there. But he says, I don't speak well, and you're going to be the one that tells Pharaoh, I am that I am, the covenant name of God from Exodus 3, has commanded you to, to let these people go, Pharaoh. And so he does that, and Pharaoh, he digs his heels in every time. So God begins to bring these plagues on the land. And each plague, by the way, we, I would love to do an in-depth study on that sometime. Each plague is representative of an Egyptian deity. And God is essentially trumping these Egyptian deities every step of the way. Every time he does, uses one of these plagues. He's going against the god of the weather with the hailstone. He's against, going against the frogs and against you know the, the different things. And then he gets to the last plague, and it's going to be the plague of death, to where he's going to kill all of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And if they were Israelites and they were not covered here, they would be too. The angel of death is going to pass through the land and he's going to take the life of every firstborn. So here in Exodus 12, verse 3, he says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Drop to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Drop down to verse 12, just trying to save time here. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and when and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
Again, looking at this account, we see a parallel. Egypt in the Bible is symbolic of what? The world. The world, that's right. And so here, God wants to deliver His people from the world. And He knows that His people are sinful. Thoughts, words, and deeds. We really talked about that, guys. The basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. And we see Pharaoh is acting out big time, and God has allowed him to harden his heart and all of that. And so, as he's coming through here, he's saying, look, I'm going to kill, my judgment is going to come against the land of Egypt. And you will be protected if you follow this prescription. I'm prescribing a way for your protection, for you to be delivered from death. To, to be delivered from judgment. Again, a picture of what we see the fulfillment in the cross of Christ to be. And so, uh, when he talks about this, he says, take a lamb and sacrifice it. And as you sacrifice this lamb, as you kill this lamb, he says, on a particular day, you're going to select the lamb. Uh, on, and... and then you'll keep it in your house for four days, and that's to inspect the lamb, to make sure that it's without spot or blemish, to make sure that it is acceptable to me, because that has to be a, a pure lamb, and that's signifying the holiness of God, that God is holy. He is infinitely pure as relates to infinity, and we aren't. And so in order for him to do business with us, there has to be a basis of establishing holiness. That lamb was supposed to be spotless and clean. It would be undeserving of death as anything else could be. Again, we see that in Jesus, that he was the only man that was never deserving of death, that he never sinned. He was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. And so, with that being the case, we see here that that wasn't going to be Jesus, but the, the ultimate fulfillment would be Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see how that fits? And so, what he's doing here is he's saying that uh, you're going to have this provision to take the blood, you put it on the lintels of the doorposts of your house, in other words, Take a hyssop branch, by the way, that was the same branch that they used to give Jesus vinegar when he was on the cross. And take this vinegar, or this, this hyssop, and take it, dip it in the blood, and spread it all over the, the, the doorway of your house. And when the angel of death comes through the land, he will pass over you. Uh, fabulous, fabulous symbolism in this, guys. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the dates that are involved here. Uh, I think it's, it's, I love this kind of stuff because I see that God is truly the divine engineer behind all of this stuff. He has so intricately put his word together, and there's a purpose in it. We'll talk about that as we wrap up this morning. There's a profound purpose in it. But I want to look here at, first I want to look at Passover week. Let's go ahead and switch that. I want to look at four things here. I want to look at the selection, the observation, the sacrifice, and the deliverance. So here in Exodus, we see that there are dates involved. He says, on and the, the Hebrew word for the first month of the year, he says this will be the first month of the year, it'll be a holy month, it'll be it's and it is still the first month of the, the ecclesiastical year of the Jews. And they go by, a, it's a lunar calendar, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but the point is, he says, on the first of the month, on the tenth of that month, or on the, the first month, Abib is the name of the month, on the tenth of that month, I'm going to have you select a lamb. And so they would select the lamb on Abib 10. Right? Follow me here? Now, observation of the lamb, remember he said, I want you to take it into your house and check it out until the 14th. So that will be the time of observation to be sure that that lamb is acceptable as the sacrifice for the Passover. All right? Now, at twilight on a beep, the 14th, after you've looked at it for days, I want you to sacrifice the lamb. Now, twilight in the Hebrew calendar was at about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They called that twilight because evening was six. Uh, Got to understand something again. 
the Hebrews didn't think like we do with numbers and with calendars and hours and months and all that. They had a whole different way of looking at things. They didn't understand a zero place value. In other words, I'm going to explain this. If they were going to go in a sequel, if they were going to count, we start with zero and go from zero to one, that's one. From one to two, that's two, and so on. It's like saying, okay, if I'm 40 years old, I wish, um, if I'm 40 years old, then I've had my birthday, okay? I just had my 40th birthday. From there until my 41st year, I'm 40, right? Not for the Jew. Because on my 40th birthday, I begin my 41st year. They don't count zero. So... From my 40th birthday on, I can be 40 in two days, and I'm 41. You see how that works? So they don't look at zero. They start counting from the beginning. That's why Jesus could be in the grave for three days. Remember, he was crucified on Friday, and it was less than 48 hours before he rose. And it says he was three days in the grave. How do you figure? Because they start counting on Friday, twilight. We'll talk about that. And then there's Saturday, and then there's Sunday, three days. See, no zero. You guys follow me on that? It's a little weird. We don't do it that way, but that's how God does. And even from the very beginning, you've got to realize that a Jewish day, there's two components to a Jewish day that are very different from how we look at things. First of all, a day was measured from sunset forward to the following day at sunset. Okay? They didn't go midnight to 11.59. They went sundown to sundown. And that was a day. So actually it covers a span of time over two days for us, but it's one day in the Jewish mind. Another thing that's interesting about how they measured time, guys, <coughs> is that the Jewish day was broken into 12 equal parts. Remember all the way back in Genesis, it says the evening and the morning, and that was the first day, the evening and the morning, that was the second day and all of that. That's how they were looking at this. It was the evening and the morning, is it in, in evening and the following day, it's all part of the same day. Well, when you break that down into hours, they went from sun up to sundown, and they divided that into 12 equal parts. So if you remember, at, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, it talks about, about the third hour of the day that the Holy Spirit came and, and came upon them and all that. It was 9 in the morning. They said, you guys are supposing that we're drunk? No, no, it's only 9 in the morning. Well, the third hour is what say it stated there. We know that that would be 9 in the morning because they start at 6. And if it was the 11th hour, remember Jesus with the parable of the laborers when he hires, starts hiring guys in the morning and then he brings guys in through the whole day and he keeps hiring them and he gets right up to 5 o'clock and he hires some guys then at 5? It says that at the 11th hour he's still hiring people. Well, the 11th hour would be 5 o'clock. The interesting thing is, is in the summertime they had longer hours. In the short, in the wintertime they had shorter hours because the days were shorter. Sun up to sun down, that stretches and, and, and expands and contracts. And so they essentially went with what's the highest point of the sun in the sky, and they, they figured it from there. All of that is to say this. As we read these things and as we look at the things of the Bible, we look at timelines and times and all of that, you have to look at it from a Hebrew or a Jewish mindset or you'll get all stumbled up and tripped up. And I mean, people have challenged the resurrection for years. How could it be? How could it be? Well, they didn't measure it like we do. And their system of measure makes perfect sense when you understand it. So here we have the selection of the lamb on a Abib 10, the observation of the lamb through a Abib 14, through that week, the sacrifice of the lamb on a Abib twilight on a Abib 14, okay, and then the deliverance on a Abib 16. We see... The deliverance here is the Red Sea. So, and these are the dates that those things fell on. And there's some debate about this uh, particular dates, but if, if it, and that's fine. I let people, if they want to debate that, they can. But you have to apply it to this and to the cross, and uh, we'll go forward from there. Go to the next one, please. All right, let's look at some parallels here. This is Jesus last week, and it was Passover. The selection. The day that the Lamb the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb for Passover was going to be selected was the day that he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. All right? 
And that now notice there's a different name for the month here. It's a Nissan. Doesn't have to do with a little car. <laughs> but um, Nissan, it, what happened was it, it's the same month. It's still the first month in the Hebrew calendar. But during the Assyrian captivity, back in Israel's history, I'm not going to go into that, the, the name of the month was changed. All right? And so when the people came back from being in exile for 70 years and all of that, they came back in the land, it was no longer a bee, but now it's Nisan. Same month. Don't worry about it. I thought about putting the same thing in there. And I thought, well, no, I'll just keep the months the way that they are, the way that the Bible, because the Bible records these months, and it talks about both Abib and Nisan, and they're the same, they're synonymous. So when Jesus came into town on that donkey, the triumphal entry is what we call it. It was the day of selection, the day that the lamb would be selected for the for the Passover. Right? All right? And he came in, and, and remember the people, the crowds were just, you know, Lord willing, on, uh, when it comes close to, to Easter and Passion Week and all that, we'll teach on that. Uh, some fabulous parallels there and some really interesting things that were going on with the people uh, at that time. But here, when he comes in, it's the Son 10. He spent the next several days under observation. He was teaching in the temple every day. He, he was, and, and ultimately... He would end up before Pilate, being examined before Pilate. Interesting, in John 19.4, Pilate says this about Jesus. He says, I find no fault in him. That was a divine declaration using Pilate's lips. That Jesus had been found spotless, that he had been innocent, that he had been found acceptable as the Lamb of God. Prophetically speaking, Pilate didn't even know what he was saying. He said, I find no fault with him. He had been under inspection for the last several days. And now here he was being on, uh, he was on trial. He went through six mock trials. And during that, Pilate makes this very profound statement. He's spotless. He's without blemish. And he fulfills what was foreshadowed all the way back in Exodus as he makes that statement. Finally, we see the deliverance here on Nisan 16, and that is what we see in the resurrection. When God, had, the Father, had accepted the sacrifice that Jesus was, he was the Passover lamb, he was the one who would take the sins of the world, he was the one who, that angel of death would pass over all who were looking to him, the judgment would go right past me, because I believe in Jesus, the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of that. And so when John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's looking down on what was to come, but he's also looking back on what had already been. You see the whole panorama of God's plan. Uh, this stuff fascinates me. Another interesting thing about this. Jesus was crucified on Friday as the Lamb. That was Passover. Again, he had his la- the Last Supper was on Thursday night, but it was after sunset. It was still Friday. Okay? You see how the, the Jewish day comes into play there? So... After sunset on Thursday night, it became Friday. And when he was crucified, he was crucified at twilight. He was crucified at the ninth hour of the day, three in the afternoon. Perfect fulfillment of what God said back in Exodus. Not only that, when you look at the feasts, it was Passover on Friday, Thursday night into Friday. And there are three feasts in the Hebrew calendar, the Jewish calendar, that come into play that are back-to-back in this time. The next feast starts at sunset on Friday. And that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Think about it. They were hurrying to get Jesus' body in that grave. Joseph of Arimathea comes. He's a wealthy man. He offers his own tomb for for their use for Messiah to go. And... Jesus' body, which had been broken for us by that time, 
was put into the, the tomb. And he says, take this bread, which is my body, which is broken for you, when he takes the Passover with his guys. <clears throat> is it an accident? Not in your life. Not in your life. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is while Jesus lays in that tomb. The sinless leaven in the Bible is always symbolic of what? Sin. That's right. So it's the feast of the sinless body, if you look at it in that in a literal sense of what he's saying. He he knew no sin. And so here is the feast of unleavened bread going on outside while his body is in the tomb inside and it was all part of God's plan. Now the very next day it would be there was the feast that was the first day after the Sabbath following Passover. Alright? That's how they measured it. Just like we do Easter it's the first Sunday after the I think the the spring equinox or something. I don't remember. Um, But there's a formula. And the formula for the feast this next feast was there would be Passover, and then there'd be a Sabbath, and then there'd be the next day. Okay? It was called the Feast of First Fruits. They would wave a sheaf of grain. It was talking about the first fruits of the harvest. But we know that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, or the first fruits of the resurrection. All of those feasts pointed to an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. I'd love to do more on the feast. And perhaps someday we will, but but just suffice it to say, when we look at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is significant stuff. Back in verse 39, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we look at that and we go, it's totally fulfilled in Passover. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can see it up there on the screen. I'll read verses 6 through 8. He says, you're glorying. Now, before I get into it, the background here is there is a guy in the church, in the fellowship at Corinth, who is having a relationship with his stepmother. And we're talking about a capital R relationship. And they're saying, we're so gracious. We're so good. We're so gracious. We're just allowing all this stuff. We're just, you know, we've got the grace of God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're glorying in the wrong stuff. There's a place for holiness in the church. There's a place for keeping that which is pure, pure. And he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, there's that word again, a little sin leavens the whole lump? How much yeast does it take when you make bread to get that whole thing to rise? It doesn't take much. But he says it ruins the whole thing in that sense. He says, therefore, I uh, purge out the old leaven, the old sin, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. You've been declared unleavened, because if you belong to Christ, you've been declared sinless. That's what being sanctified means. You are sinless. When God looks at you, He sees you in Christ. And you're without sin. Practically speaking, that leaven sneaks in, doesn't it? Yeah. Or, 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 or we let it in. <clears throat> He says, be a new lump, you, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Oh, do we have to keep the, the feast of Passover, Pastor John? That's not what he's saying. Well, one, he says, not with the old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Living a life that's above the kind. Those are things that are willful faults. There are sins that we commit that are... We we just mess up. There are times where I might, you know, open mouth and then engage brain. I'm famous for that. Around the house. But there are also times where I willfully decide, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to get that thing with my wife. You know, I don't like the way she did that. Or, I'm not going to tell you that, but you know what I'm saying? There are times where we decide, you know what, I'm going to blow right past what I know God wants. 
He says, no, don't do that. Let that be replaced with sincerity and truth. Because that's God's will. Does it mean he doesn't love me if I blow it? No. His love won't change. His loving kindness is everlasting. The love that he solves. That doesn't mean that he's serious about his kids and he wants us to live lives that are not marked by sin, habitual sin, life-dominating sin. And if that's an area of your life where the Holy Spirit has put his hand on, I encourage you to do business with him. Do business with him. It's been my experience. He will shout as loudly into our lives as he needs to. There are times where we go to the woodshed of death. It's not my opinion. It's right out of Hebrews chapter 12. Because he loves us. Because he wants to produce that peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. And sometimes he has to pry us away from our sin in order to do it. So he says, let us keep the feast, but not with the old leaven or the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I love it. This all links together. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all one message. And and the way that God links it together is phenomenal. Um, When he talks about who takes away the sin of the world, I'm going to make a couple comments in closing here. He's not talking about universal salvation. Everybody is saved. He leaves that to human will. It's his will, the Bible tells us, that all come to repentance and embrace Christ and have life in his name. But not everyone does. Part of the mission of this church is to spread the good news, the gospel of Christ, that he did come as a sacrificial man, that he did come to forgive us for our sins to any who will believe. We get sidetracked on that, we have missed the message. We have totally missed it. That's our central call. It's our central mission as a church. To be reaching out in our neighborhoods. To be reaching out to those unsaved members of our family. To be reaching out and sharing the love of Christ to a dying, lost, messed up world. We can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of that. We can't implode as a church become so focused on other things that we lose sight of what's really truly important and why we really truly are here. That's central. So it's not a universal salvation. The other thing, he talks about sin. He's talking about original sin in this sense. Sins, I sin because I'm a sinner. All right, let me explain the difference, and I'll explain this, and, and then we'll we'll um, we'll finish up. Let's say that you know I'm talking to you about a horse thief. Okay, what is it that makes a man a horse thief? That's the logical conclusion, but it's absolutely wrong. <laughs> Sorry, trick question. He's not a horse thief until he steals a horse. So what makes a man a horse thief is that's, see, that's what we're thinking. Well, stealing a horse makes him a, a horse thing. That's not true. The minute that that idea is conceived in his heart, in his mind, to steal that horse, he's there. That's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he keeps illustrating the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. You've been told, but I tell you, you see that over and over and over again in that passage. Love to go there, but we're out of time. So, we sin because we're sinners. What he's talking about is, is Adam's sin. The, the nature that we have. And he says, why don't you do a trade-in with me? Give me your old nature, and I'll give you mine. That's the best deal of, of eternity. Because it's simply what he wants to do. That's why he became the sacrificial lamb. The lamb <clears throat> who takes away the sins of the world. See, when we can get into Romans where he, the Apostle Paul talks about this doctrine called federal headship, he says, by one man sin came in, and by one man, the second Adam, sin was dealt with once for all. For anybody who looked to sick a code. 
In chapter 1, verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And John reiterates verse 15. And I want you to notice that he's always pointing to Jesus. He says, I didn't know him in verse 31, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Wait a minute. I thought John was his cousin. They would have seen each other growing up, I would imagine. John didn't know. He knew who Jesus was. But I believe this reference here is it wasn't until the time had come and John's ministry was in full swing and the Lord was revealing to him, the Holy Spirit was revealing to him what Jesus was. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. I don't believe that John knew that up until this point. So when he says, I didn't know him. I didn't know what he was. I knew who he was. He was Jesus, my cousin. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was this guy that was always kind of marching to a different drummer growing up or whatever. I'm speculating there. But he didn't know what John or Jesus was. So what's the point in all of this, folks? This is just a great lesson on Bible history and Bible parallels and all of that. No. Why would God go to such great lengths to have everything do this? To have everything tie together so intricately and so perfectly over centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of time. Why? Because of the great love he has for you, for me. He wants us to understand this message was engineered in his heart long ago. And it is as relevant today as it was back in the days uh, of the, the, the Israelites doing the Passover, and they still do. They're still waiting for Messiah. Unfortunately, they miss it. They miss him. It was as, it's as relevant as it was back in the days when Abraham had his son there on the altar on Mount Moriah. All of that comes forward. It all comes forward. It all assembles together, and it all assembles together for one purpose, that God could demonstrate that this is all real, this is all true, He really exists, He really cares, He really is personal, He wants to do business with each of us individually. Yes, for salvation, and yes, as we go. It's His will that we grow in grace and knowledge of Him. That's why He does these things. This linkage, this divine linkage, we see all the way through God's Word. There are these threads that run all the way through, and they always, it's amazing, they keep pointing us back to Jesus over and over and over again. Praise God that they do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and just for the fabulous way that you assemble these things together. Lord, we thank you that you, from eternity past, would look at these things, you'd look down through the ages, and you would perform all of these these, these minute-looking signs at the moment, but so we can look at them and see this grand scheme, this grand plan that you have for humanity. And, and by it, Lord, we pray that you're glorified in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would work in us, Father, that you would show yourself strong in our behalves, that you would go before us in the battles, that you would simply pour out your love on us. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you. We thank you for this morning. We pray now as we worship you that you would find hearts that are yielded to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And we all said, Amen. Amen.